Okay then, right, well, if you can open up your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 3. Uh, Sunday mornings when uh, I'm teaching, I'm going through the book of Judges. Tomorrow evening, Ian will be teaching and continuing his studies through the book of Zechariah. We are in Judges chapter 3, and we're going to do the whole chapter this morning, uh, the first three Judges. We've uh, gone through two chapters already and not seen a single judge and you're thinking oh crikey why is it called judges well we get three all in one big hit this morning which is good but uh, before we read the word of God let's uh, begin with a word of prayer Father God we do come before your throne this morning and I know that no amount of study and preparation here makes uh, a, a jot of difference if we do not have the anointing and the guidance of your Holy Spirit so we pray that you would take these words that we read and look into this morning and speak to our lives, that we would hear your spirit speaking to us, that we would all draw from this text a lesson to be able to help us in our own individual walk and relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for uh, those who haven't been with us for the first two talks or those who can't remember um, what was in the first two talks, we have been looking at um, the ongoing history of the people of Israel following the death of um, Joshua. And we see that after Joshua, there was a generation that had known Joshua, that had served under Joshua, the elders, but they passed away. And so then there was a third generation. And it's this third generation did not know God. And that word know there is the same word that uh, is used in Genesis where it says that Adam knew his wife. It's speaking of an intimate knowledge, an intimate relationship. And it would seem that the people of Israel forgot their God. And as they forgot God, they uh, neglected to serve him. In fact, what they did was they started to turn to the pagan idols of the Canaanites, which had remained in the land. And they amalgamated pagan worship with um, the worship of Yahweh or Jehovah and so we get this hybrid kind of fusion of religion and uh, it uh, it spawned a cycle that we see repeated throughout the book of Judges. They go from a place of relationship and, and serving God to a place of disobedience because they're serving these foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and then that disobedience prompts God to bring in an oppressive force from outside, a neighbouring nation to subject the people to a time of oppression and discipline where they have to pay tribute and their life is made tough. And eventually what Israel would do is they would cry out to God from the distress that these uh, oppressive forces created. And God, being a good God and a faithful God, provided a deliverer. He raised up somebody from within uh, one of the tribes to be able to get rid of this oppressive force. And so the land had rest and the people returned to serving God. But we see that their time of service and relationship with God only endured for a short period of time before they fell back into disobedience. And so the cycle would occur again. Some people call this the cycle of oppression and deliverance. Others call it the cycle of sin. But we see that this cycle goes in uh, uh, goes round seven times through the book of Judges in the history of Israel. Here we see the seven cycles of oppression and deliverance. 
and we see there a list of the seven uh, different oppressors that would come against Israel. And we also see the seven uh, groups of deliverers that would be raised up to be able to deliver them from the oppressors. Uh, we see that at certain times there was more than one deliverer that uh, God used to be able to get rid of that oppressive force. And I've got the biblical references there for you as well. So that gives us something of uh, a reprise showing us where we are going within the book of Judges. And uh, so by the time we get to chapter three, we're going to see this first, uh, second and third oppressor and the first, second and third deliverer appear. Now, there is just one thing I want to say before um, we actually go into the text. And as we go through that cycle of sin, that cycle of oppression and deliverance, it's easy to see how that might relate to us, how we go can go to a place of disobedience and, and distress and then God brings deliverance. I wouldn't want us to draw too close a parallel in our own individual walk with that cycle. That cycle is what occurred in the history of Israel. And though we may draw some parallels to our own walk, it would be wrong to conclude that because you are in a place of distress, it is the consequence of sin and disobedience in your life. There are many causes of distress in life that are not related to sin. There is always misfortune. Just the fact that life happens, that can bring distress. There is sickness and death and that can bring distress. And although I know that all sickness and death is ultimately the result of the fall, just because you're in distress because you've lost a loved one or because you're in a place of sickness doesn't mean that you have sinned or disobeyed God. And of course, there can be external influences that can cause distress in life. I mean, this last year, what with COVID, there's been a tremendous amount of distress that not only our nation, but the world has experienced. And it would be wrong to conclude that because we are experiencing distress, it's because there's disobedience or sin in our life. Don't allow yourself to get fall into a trap of condemnation because of that. But uh, that said, let's launch into Judges chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites, who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the writer of the book of Judges provides a list of nations that remained in Canaan, uh, either because they had not been fully defeated or driven back or because um, they had re-exerted their power and regained a foothold in the land. And we are told that the Lord allowed these nations to remain for two reasons. The first reason is to test Israel and the second reason is to teach Israel. Test and teach. Uh, they were to test to see whether Israel would obey God's commandments, whether they would prove faithful and rely upon God. And the second purpose for leaving these nations in the land is to teach Israel that they might know war, that they might be able to do battle in the face of conflict. And 
in many occasions, the Lord allows conflict in our lives for the same two reasons, to test our faith and to teach us to fight. You see, you may confess with your mouth that you trust in God, that you rely upon God. Yes, I believe. But how do we know if that is true or not? We don't. That statement that you trust in the Lord needs to be tested to be proven that it's true. And the way that God tests our faith is often through conflict and trial. When the going gets tough, do we continue to trust in God and rely upon him? Or do we run to our own resources to manage and try to get out of that situation? And it's only when we have passed through a season of testing and trial will the integrity of our faith be truly known. But also, only having passed through that season of testing, will the integrity of God's faithfulness be seen. And invariably, when you go through a period of testing, your faith gets strengthened, but your relationship with God gets deepened because you see sides of his character and experience sides of his character that you hadn't otherwise seen. But also, God allows conflict in our lives to teach us. Every uh, disciple of Jesus Christ is a soldier. And uh, we know that our conflict is not against flesh and blood, against human agents, because we battle against the flesh, the world and the devil. And I would argue out of those three foes, flesh, the world and the devil, the greatest enemy we face is the flesh. If we were free of the flesh, our sinful nature, the world would not have an influence in our life and the enemy would not be able to gain a foothold in our life. And so... The Lord manages and controls the conflicts we face in our lives and through those conflicts teaches us to fight, to fight the flesh, to fight the enemy, to fight the world. And he teaches us to be increasingly victorious. I mean, we have a victory through Jesus Christ when we are first saved, but he teaches us to get stronger and sturdier and more victorious. And the more and the more that our faith increases, the more victorious we become, the more effective we can be in our service to him. Now the the four remaining nations uh, or or groups of people that the Lord left in the land are named as the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites. The Philistines were to the southwest, the Canaanites were to the southeast, the Sidonians uh, were to the northwest going towards the Phoenicians and the Hivites were to the north, northeast. Sidonians northwest, Hivites northeast. And so we see that they, they, they encompass the whole land. There is, there is pressure there throughout the whole land. And these remaining nations, for us, are a picture of the flesh. They are the undealt with areas of our life that we need to do better with. They are a picture of our selfishness, of our lust, of our anger, of our self-reliance. Just as there were undefeated nations in Israel, there are undefeated areas in our lives that we need to do battle with and we need to overcome. And when we look at these deliverers that God raises up, they are a picture of the deliverance that we can gain from these uh, uh, these um, uh, areas of, our, of the flesh in our lives. You see, Israel only defeated these nations When they operated in faith, they cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer. 
And we can only defeat the flesh in our lives when we operate in faith, we cry out to the Lord, and we rely on our deliverer, Jesus Christ. What we do is we bring our flesh, those areas in our lives where we are wrestling with, to the cross. We confess them to the Lord, and then they are crucified with Christ. Now, interestingly, uh, if we were to go back to Judges chapter 1, verse 18, we're told something. It says, Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And you're thinking, that doesn't sound very interesting, Matt. Well, it is interesting if you know that that is the area, that is the land that the Philistines occupied. Judah conquered the area uh, that is occupied by the Philistines. But here in chapter 3, we, rec we recognise that one of the remaining nations is the Philistines. So what's happened is these five lords of the Philistines have re-exerted their control and taken back the land from Judah. Now when we think about these uh, various nations being a picture of our flesh, let me ask you, have you ever known your flesh to re-exert its control in your life? You've confessed your sin, you've brought it to the cross, it's been crucified with Christ and somehow it seems to be resurrected the next day or later on in the week or something. And you think, am I ever going to be free of this flesh? Am I ever going to be free of this Philistine in my life? What do you do in that situation? Well, it's the same as what you did before. You operate in faith, you cry out to the Lord and you rely upon our deliverer, Jesus Christ. You bring that flesh back to the cross. You confess your sin and it is crucified with Christ. And if it comes back again, you go back to the cross. You confess your sin. You allow it to be crucified with Christ. And what you find is as you follow this process over and over again, your flesh will grow weaker, its ability to exert control in your life will reduce and you'll grow stronger in faith. It's a process. It takes time. It's not easy, but we are guaranteed victory. Now, the question raised in Judges 3 verse 4 is this, whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord. There needs to be a quantifiable measure by which a man can gauge his obedience or disobedience to God. And that measure is always the word of God, the Bible. The degree to which a man is obedient to the Bible is the degree to which he has faith and obedience towards God. Let me say that again. The degree to which a man is obedient to the Bible is the degree to which he has faith and obedience toward God. That is our measure. That is our plumb line, as it were. And there are those who claim to have a faith and an obedience to God, but have a scant regard for scripture as an authority in their life. They measure faith and obedience by what they feel in their heart or what seems reasonable in their mind or what appears spiritual or effectual. Let me say here this morning, such measures are invalid in God's eyes. In fact, they are tantamount to idolatry because you are holding your feelings or your thoughts or your opinions as superior 
to the word of God, the Bible. God always measures our faith and obedience to him by way of our obedience to the word of God. And we should always measure ourselves by the standard of the Bible. This has always been true of God's people. It's true of the church today and it was true of Israel back in the day of the judges. You see, Israel had conquered Canaan and they, they'd conquered it because they had obeyed the command of God and they'd believed in the promise of God that he would give the land. And both the command and the promise was contained in the word of God. It was by operating in faith and obedience to the word of God that they were in a place of victory to start off with. And Israel's ongoing faith in God would be tested and proven by her continued obedience to the commandments of God, evidenced in victory over the remaining nations. So let's see, do they carry on in faith and obedience to God's words? Verses four and five, uh, sorry, five and six. So the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. I'm afraid they did not. They dwelt among the nations. They married among the nations. They served the gods of the nations. This is rank disobedience to the word of God, to the commandments of God. This generation outright rejected God by virtue of rejecting his commandments. And let me say today, when you see Christians disobeying the word of God, you are actually seeing Christians rejecting God. This is the measure by which our faith and obedience to God is gauged. This is always our measure. And there were three steps of disobedience that we saw in Israel. There was interaction, there was intermarriage and there was interfaith. Interaction, intermarriage and interfaith. The interaction was seen that the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. But let me make it clear, there should be a distinction and a separation between the world and the believer. Now, obviously, we, we spend time with those who are unsaved in our workplace, in our families and in our social lives. We're not going to be able to reach people for Jesus Christ if we do not. But if you are spending time in the company of those who are not saved and they are beginning to have an influence upon you so that you are starting to speak as they speak, and act as they act, it won't be long before you think like they think. And it is at that time you need to start to withdraw because that distinction and separation is no longer there because you're starting to interact in such a way that you're becoming more like them. There should be a distinction about us. Whenever we're in the company of those who don't know Jesus, people should be able to see that there is something different about us. And when that distinction starts to disappear, we need to withdraw. And the problem with Israel is that they did not withdraw. They continued to interact. The second step of disobedience was intermarriage. We're told they took their daughters to be their wives. Now, let me just say it very quickly and clearly. I'm, firm, I'm a firm proponent that believers should not marry unbelievers. I believe that is firmly supported and upheld by scripture. But more than that, we should not be wedded to things in the world, be it entertainment, material possessions or where we live. We should not be wedded to these things. We should be wedded to the Lord 
and his will for our lives. We should be willing to surrender and give up anything that we have at a moment's notice because our weddedness to the Lord is far greater than the things that are around us. We should not be yoked to sin or the world. And this was a problem with Israel. They were unequally yoked. They were intermarrying with the nations. And so the corruption really started to come in in a greater measure. And then the third and the final stage was interfaith. We're told they served their gods. And Israel did not abandon the worship of Jehovah, but they added to it the worship of Baal. Not only did they have an unholy physical marriage, they had an unholy spiritual marriage. And this is apostasy. And we need to be careful and guard ourselves against apostasy, adding things to our religion which should not be there, or indeed taking things from our religion that uh, should not be removed. And you think, well, I'm well free of this. I'm part of a church that God has founded. They teach right theology. We have gifts of the spirit in operation. But think about Israel. They had been founded and established by God. Israel had right theology. It had the law of Moses. And Israel had signs and wonders, not only in, in Egypt, but throughout the wilderness. It also, as they came into the land with the defeat of places like Jericho, and even the last chapter, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Yet that did not stop them from apostatizing. The core of the problem is not where they came from or what they had. It's the fact that they failed to continue in the word of God. The way we guard ourselves is by continuing in the word of God. And that's why we place such a high priority upon teaching the word of God every week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So let's look at the first judge that... Uh, is raised up in response to this. Uh, Judges 3 verses 7 and 8. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. You know, perhaps Israel saw nothing wrong in their conduct. They still had the tabernacle at Shiloh. They sacrificed to the Lord God. They still kept the feasts. But now they were also honouring Baals and Asherahs. And uh, it's now that we see that see things that, but it's now not how we, sorry. Maybe they didn't see anything wrong in what they were doing. But it's not how we see things that matters. It's how God sees things that count. And we are told that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we should also always be asking ourselves, how does God view this situation? How does God view the way that I'm operating in this scenario? And while Israel were cool in their service to God, God was hot in his anger toward Israel. And so the cycle of oppression and uh, deliverance begins. Israel would endure seven cycles of oppression, as I already said, and this is the first cycle, and it was at the hand of the Mesopotamians. Israel goes from a place of rest and relationship with God to a place of disobedience, and God takes Israel from disobedience to a place of discipline, and that discipline brings distress. And we see that the king of Mesopotamia is called Cushan Rishathaim, and his name 
uh, if we translate it literally from the Hebrew, means dark double wickedness. Kushan Rishathair means dark double wickedness. Wickedness. Now, I'm guessing his mum and dad probably didn't pick this name out from a baby name book. They weren't looking through all the names and thinking, oh, dark double wickedness. That, that has a ring to it. We'll call our son that. This is probably a title that he was given by other people because they saw a double level of wickedness inside him. Or perhaps he gave it to himself to drive fear into people's heart. but hearts. But nevertheless, for eight years, Israel were dealing with dark double wickedness. And I wonder, has anybody here faced dark double wickedness in their lives? Um, it, uh, there are times when I've got to say that I feel as if I've been facing things that are dark and they're doubly wicked and difficult to contend with. But they're not too difficult for the Lord to bring deliverance in. And it does speak to the stubborn hearted nature of Israel that it took them eight years to cry out to the Lord. If I was facing dark double wickedness, I'd be crying out to the Lord in a flash. Believe you me. So Israel have eight years of distress. They cry out to the Lord and who is moved to raise up a deliverance. So we read from verse nine. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So here we encounter Othniel once more. We've seen him in Joshua. We've seen him earlier in the book of Judges. He is both Caleb's nephew and he is Caleb's son-in-law. But it's not his family connections that makes him a suitable candidate as a judge. We are told that the Lord raised up a deliverer. A man of God must be raised up by God if he is to be used by God. And let me tell you, if there is no calling, there is no anointing. It's no good saying, well, I think I'm the man for the job and I'm going to go ahead and do it. You need to know that there's a calling of God upon your life. Because then there'll be an anointing upon your life to help you to do it. So let me just give you fair warning. Do not start a church unless God raises you up to do so. Do not take on a role within a ministry unless God raises you up to do so. And do not become a pastor or a teacher unless God raises you up to do so. Because where there is no calling, there is no anointing. And really there is one singular lesson that we can learn from the life of Othniel. And that is there in verse 10. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When we are fighting the Mesopotamians in our life, when we are contending with the flesh, we need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to operate in the strength that God supplies and in the wisdom that God supplies through the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4 verse 6, we all know, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of, Lord of hosts. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people who were called to certain roles to empower them and equip them to execute that role and calling. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers and the Holy Spirit is there to equip and empower and to help all believers in their service to the Lord. And I think it is of fundamental importance that a Christian regularly asks God 
to fill them with the Holy Spirit. I firmly advocate that every day you should come to the Lord and confess your sin and every day you should come to God and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, you were filled with the Spirit at that point of salvation, but it should not be a one-time thing just at the point of salvation. It should be an ongoing thing because you need it for effective service. Galatians 5 verse 16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you deal with the flesh in your life? You walk by the Spirit, you are filled by the Spirit, you are led by the Spirit, you are empowered by the Spirit. And of course, Ephesians 5 verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that wine numbs the senses, causes you to become less uh, effective. But being filled with the Holy Spirit is a contrast. It helps you to be far more effective and far more successful. It is a command there. Be filled with the Spirit. So it was that... Uh, So it was in the power of the Holy Spirit that Othniel was able to deliver the Israelites from the Mesopotamians. It was not his natural military might that Othniel defeated dark double witness. It was in the power that God supplied. And it's not in our own natural strength can we defeat dark double wickedness in our lives. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Israel had peace for 40 years. Now we go on to the second judge, Ehud, and we read in verses 12 to 14. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. 40 years of deliverance, 40 years of rest under Othniel made Israel soft and they forgot the eight years of bondage under Cushan Rishathaim. This reminds me of uh, one of my favourite proverbs, Proverbs 26 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. And Israel again repeat their folly. They return to the vomit of their disobedience. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. And Israel sinned once more. And Israel's sin brought them into bondage once more. And let me tell you plainly, sin will always bring you into bondage. It looks good at the beginning, but it'll always uh, leave you um, uh, hanging dry and out of the water. You know, the fish never contemplates the bondage of the hook when it goes after the bait, does it? Israel endured the second of the seven cycles of oppression, and that second cycle was at the hand of the Moabites. And we are told that the Lord strengthens Eglon against Israel. We should walk with reverence and fear before a God, who with one hand gives strength to Othniel to overpower Cushan Rishathaim, but then with the other hand gives strength to Eglon to overpower Israel. This is a God that we should walk with fear and reverence before. And Eglon's rise to power is aided and abetted by the Ammonites and the Amalekites, we're told in verse 13. Of course, the Moabites and the Ammonites are the descendants of Lot, and the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. So this is very much a family affair. And we're told that Eglon took possession of the city of Palms, that is, the city of Jericho. 
in the tribal area of Benjamin. And the city that marked Israel's first and greatest victory is now the marker for Israel's oppression and bondage. And what a bitter taste that must have left in their mouths. And Israel endured the oppression of Eglon for 18 years. It took Israel a lot longer to cry out to the Lord from their distress than they did beforehand. And I think this shows something of the progressive hardening of Israel's heart. Now we go on to the uh, main body of the passage, reading from verse 15. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger, it was double-edged and a cubit in length, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. And he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Oh, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. And Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached from his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. To their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, well, he's, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. And so they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images, and escaped to Sirah. So again we are told the Lord raised up a deliverer. And uh, so this is not a person with natural strength or gifting to lead or fight. This is a person appointed by the Lord and his ability is derived from him. And uh, there were four problems that Ehud had to overcome. The first problem was how to gain access to King Eglon. And the solution presented itself very easily. When Israel send their tribute to Eglon, Ehud positions himself as the head of the messengers it was a, And of course, it was a substantial tribute because we're told that there was a number of men that it took to carry it. And one of these men were Ehud. So he overcame the first problem. He was able to gain access to King Eglon. The second problem was how to smuggle a lethal weapon to use on Eglon. That was much harder. Now, Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin, but he is noted as being a left-handed man, which is quite ironic considering Benjamin means son of the right hand. And uh, some left-hand facts. Apparently 10% to 12% of the world are left-handed. Famous people who are left-handed are former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, former prime ministers David Cameron and Winston Churchill, and even Prince William is left-handed. And uh, I also found out that the Simpsons creator, Matt Groening, he's left-handed, which is why at the beginning of every episode you see Bart Simpson writing on the chalkboard with his left hand. 
But uh, yeah, the benefit of being left-handed is seen in that he's able to conceal his dagger on his right thigh. If you're right-handed, as the majority of people are, you're going to draw your sword from your left thigh. So when Ehud passes through security, because his weapon is concealed in an unfamiliar place, the checks don't uncover the concealed weapon. So he's able to smuggle it in safely. And uh, it's also been suggested by a number of different um, commentators that the fact that he's left-handed might also point to a physical disability, i.e. his right-hand side was disabled, so he walked with a limp, and so he could only use his, um, his left hand when it comes to wielding a sword. I don't know whether that's true or not, but if it is, it just shows how God can use all people regardless of ability to accomplish his purposes. Now, the third problem, how to secure a private audience with Eglon. What he did was, once the tribute had been presented, Ehud leads the company who carried the tribute out of the throne room and they head as far as Gilgal before Ehud turns around and returns back alone. Okay, so Ehud arrives and he announces that he has a secret message for the king. And uh, Eglon at this time has now moved to his private chambers. Uh, but his interest is aroused at the thought of this secret message. So he dismisses all of his court attendants. And he's seen Ehud once. And uh, he's perceived, he's not perceived as a threat. So what, you know, what threat could a potentially lame man pose? So a private audience is granted. And so Ehud has his opportunity. He's even bold enough to say, I have a message from God for you. What Eglon doesn't know is that it is a message of judgment. So Eglon rises from the seat and draws close and Ehud is able to unsheath his dagger and plunge it into Eglon's stomach. And so great was the thrust and so great was the belly that the dagger was swallowed up by the fat and the entrails spilled out. Now, that word entrails is a very kind translation. If you were to read the King James, it says the dirt came out, which is being a little bit more descriptive. The Hebrew makes it very clear that the intestine and the bowel was pierced and uh, the excrement or feces spilled out. So this was a very messy demise. And then, of course, there was the fourth problem, how to make a safe escape. Ehud locks the doors to the private chamber thus delaying access from the palace security. And then he leaves via the porch, i.e. he leaves by different means, and so he's able to hasten his escape. And then there are three notes of surprise by Eglon's servants. The first note of surprise is that the doors to the private chambers are locked, but they explain that away by with the assumption that he's in the toilet. Uh, then the second note of surprise is that the doors weren't opened after so long a period of time that it was starting to get embarrassing. And I rather suspect they probably knocked on the door but received no answer. And then the third note of surprise is that they finally get in and they find their master dead. And of course, all this delay has afforded Ehud the time he needed to make an effective escape. And so following on from this, we read uh, verses 27 to 30. And it happened when he arrived uh, that he blew his, the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. And then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valour, 
not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. So when Ehud returns from having assassinating Eglon, he sounds the trumpet. This is the shofar, a ram's horn. And uh, the shofar was blown for a number of reasons. It would be blown to announce a feast. It would uh, be blown to announce the gathering of God's elect. It would be announced, uh, it would be blown in, in worship. And the shofar would also be blown to call people to war. And of course, it's this fourth reason that the shofar is blown here in Judges. And the Lord had heard Israel's prayers and raised up a deliverer. Ehud had made the first step in giving them victory over their enemies. He had severed the head. Now they needed to destroy the body. And the strategy was very simple. The army gathered under Ehud's leadership and their strategy comprised of isolation and annihilation. Isolation in that they cut off the fords to the Jordan, thus preventing the Moabites from escaping to their land and also preventing reinforcements from joining them. And there, once isolated, they slew their oppressors completely. We are told that 10,000 men died in one day. And we are told not a man escaped. To kill 10,000 men in one day is a staggering act. And this must have ricocheted. The news of this must have ricocheted around the entire nations of, of, of Israel like wildfire. And it would have struck fear into the hearts of all the surrounding nations. And so it's no wonder that Israel enjoyed its rest for 80 years. Now, there is an application to draw from the life of Ehud. We know, we know that um, Eglon is a picture of the flesh and what a lot of flesh there was. Eglon was a very fat man. In the Hebrew, it makes it clear he was huge. Think Jabba the Hutt. He was overweight, lazy and evil. And Eglon is a perfect picture of the flesh. He is out of control, self-indulgent, fat, lazy and evil and full of pride. If ever there's a picture of the flesh, Eglon is it. But what did Ehud use to defeat Eglon? He used a sword. We're told it's a dagger and it was a cubit long. That's 18 inches or about 450 millimetres. A cubit is from the elbow to the top of the hand. So that's a cubit there. So that's, that's how long the dagger or the short sword was. And it was a double-edged sword. Now, whenever a double-edged sword is mentioned, it is always a picture of the word of God. I think we're all familiar with Hebrews 4 verse 12, where it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If we want to defeat the flesh in our life, we need to use the sword of the spirit. If we want to defeat the eglons in our life, we need to use the sword of the spirit. And how is the sword most effective? Well, it's not effective by cutting, is it? You don't use it like a knife. You thrust it. It's by piercing that uh, a sword is most effective. If you want to defeat our flesh in our lives, then we need to be pierced with the word of God. The word of God is quick, powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. We need to be pierced with a double-edged sword the way that Eglon was to allow the sword of the spirit to work its way 
deep into us, to allow it to take root inside of us for it to be truly effective. And what happened when Eglon was pierced? The dirt came out. And when the word of the spirit, so sorry, when the sword of the spirit is allowed to pierce our hearts, it exposes all the dirt in us, doesn't it? It shows us all the vileness. And of course, what other strategy did Ehud use? He isolated his enemy and he annihilated his enemy. And if we wanted to defeat the flesh in our lives, then we need to isolate it from our lives and we need to annihilate it from our lives as well. We need to show no mercy to it. Okay, let's go on to our third and final judge. And uh, it's only one verse you'll be rejoicing to to see. So you would think that's not much uh, further to go. Um, I'm mindful that the Puritans often based an entire sermon on one verse. So don't rejoice too soon. Um, We read there in verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. Israel was now in the third of the seven cycles of oppression. The third cycle was at the hand of the Philistines. And the Lord raises up Shamgar as the third judge of Israel. And we don't know a great deal about him. We do know that he was a contemporary of Deborah, the fourth judge, who we'll be looking at next time. We know this from Judges 5 verses 6 to 7. And Shamgar's weapon of choice was an ox goad. Now, an ox goad was a strong pole, typically eight foot or about 2.4 metres long. That's about the height of an average room in a domestic dwelling. And one end had a metal point for prodding the oxen and the other end had a spade for cleaning off the dirt from a plough. It was a practical tool. And uh, what we know is that in the days of King Saul, an aspect of the Philistines' oppression of Israel was the prohibition of blacksmiths, so no weapons of warfare could be made. It says in 1 Samuel 13 verses 19 and 20, Now there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, whatever that is, his axe and his sickle. So this notion of no weapons of warfare in the days of Shamgar is also reinforced in the song of Deborah found in Judges 5.8 where it says not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So this would explain why he's using a tool, an ox goad and not a weapon because there were no weapons available to him. So Shamgar used what was in his hand. He didn't complain about his lack of resources He didn't fail to obey God's call because he felt ill-equipped. He moved forward in faith and obedience to his calling and he was able to kill 600 Philistines. And the lesson for us is this. When we are combating the flesh, we may feel ill-equipped. We might feel outnumbered. But we should operate in faith and obedience, trusting that the Lord will take what little we have in our hand and use it. For his glory. You might think, well, I don't have any great theological training. I haven't been a Christian for very long. My Bible knowledge is poor. Maybe. But you are a soldier of Christ. You have been called by God. You are equipped by God. And you are enabled by God. 
If God can use one man with a tool from the shed, God can use you and God can bring you victory. So in conclusion, remember the lesson of Othniel. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember the message of Ehud. You need to use the word of God. And remember the message of Shamgar. Use what's in your hand. You have got everything that you need to secure victory through faith in Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those things that we have seen this morning in these first three judges. Help us to be those who move forward in faith and obedience. Help us to be those who do battle with the flesh. Help us not to shrink back from our duty, but to completely isolate and annihilate the flesh in our lives, that we might be more fruitful in our service for you, we pray. We thank you for the strength that you give us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the authority and the power that you give us in the word of God. And I thank you, Lord, that you equip us with all that we need in Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.